Hello friends. Every time something new is invented, it comes with the promise of a better world. We all imagine the world that we would like to live in. We imagine the good life and and we ache and we groan for a better world. And and so every invention, every gadget, every new development holds this promise and the promise is the world the way that we imagine it so this coming saturday is christmas and so people around the planet are going to pull packages out from under the tree they're going to open them with delight warm socks cool toys, fashionable clothes, fancy tools, impressive gadgets, yummy food, and they'll smile, they're, they'll cheer, they'll celebrate. It, it really is fun opening Christmas presents. But underneath that experience, there's something deeper that each gift represents. And it's that we all imagine this world the way that we'd like it to be we imagine the world we'd like to live in the good life and so as we open each gift as we open each package there's this part of us that is longing for that world that life romans chapter 8 says all creation is groaning it's like we long to live in this world that is no longer affected by decay and it's not in bondage to suffering and we ache for that better world the good life a renewed world and part of the magic of christmas for people even for people who they don't believe in jesus they don't they don't even believe in santa claus uh part of the magic still is that it is this moment when we connect with that ache that ache for the good life for a renewed world we feel that ache but is the world getting any better does the world get any better this past week i found out that two of our vital assisted living facilities in Tillamook County are going to be closing in February the Nehalem Bay house and the Kilchis house and so there's this shortage in the workforce there are rising costs that are hitting the care facilities forcing them to close their doors 55 elderly people are going to have to be transferred they're they're going to have to find some other facilities who will take them even though those other facilities are impacted by the same shortage in the workforce the same rising costs it hit me hard it, it did uh because it felt like locally watching some of the dominoes falling and i found myself asking how strong are the safety nets like what happens to an elderly person without family when there are no facilities to take them like what's what's the next step 
how far are they away from ending up out on the streets? In Jesus' day, there were very few safety nets. And so I found myself asking, how strong are our safety nets? If you talk to teachers right now, you'll hear about how things are going in the schools and the shortage of qualified teachers and how the stresses and strains of life are affecting students. Uh, Tillamook County has a housing crisis right now. Uh, if you look at how many homes are going as VRBOs and Airbnbs for super high prices, and then the number of homes that are available for families, individuals right around here who are just part of society to live in, people don't have a place to live. Is it getting any better? Uh, the APA tells us that mental health struggles in the U.S. continue to be on the rise. Racism, white supremacy, prejudice, still alive and well. And there are far too many people who are lonely, impoverished, trying their best, but they have no place to turn. They're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to cope. They're trying to survive. History tells us that the world does get better in some ways, <laughs> while it gets worse in other ways. That's what historians tell us. So they say each generation reacts to the previous generation's sins and mistakes and problems. And so it's like they overcorrect. They turn the wheel, they crank the wheel hard in the other direction and they head in that direction. And so people are constantly doing this. They react to a previous ideology and they head in a new direction and they fail to see how their new ideology is creating different downsides, new problems. And around and around we go. We all want the world that we live in to be a good place. But for far too many people, this world just isn't a good place to live. And I'm sorry if that sounds way too depressing. But for me, it begs a question. How long have humans been on this planet aching and longing for a better world? I know Christians who hold a young earth perspective, and so they'd say, uh, yeah, humans have been on this planet for 6,000 to 10,000 years, something like that. And then I know Christians who hold a theistic evolution perspective, and they'd say, humans have been on this planet five to seven million years. My question is, is 6,000 years not enough time to solve world hunger and homelessness? Is six million years not enough time to solve every conceivable problem? and come up with workable solutions, how is it that six million years isn't enough time to make this world a good place to live? You see, everyone imagines the good life. They imagine the world that they would like to live in. We've been doing this since we were little, but there's a catch. They don't all imagine the same thing. Everyone's definition of the good life is a little different. 
and everyone assumes that they know what is good. The world that we live in places this premium, a very high priority on everyone getting to decide for themselves what is right and what is good, and, and everyone goes in their separate direction. The ancient origin story of the Bible starts out with this tree in the middle of a garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it begins with a God who is completely good and with an entire world that is completely good, all of creation. And the very first thing, the most important thing that scripture tells us humans about who we are and who we have always been, who we are created to be, is that we are good. But the serpent in that story hisses, why do you need God to understand the good life? You can know what's good for yourself. You can decide, chase the good life on your own. 6,000 or, or 6 million years later, here we are. We're still chasing the good life. Have we found it yet? Is the world getting any better? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 20, 22 tells us, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. What is goodness? What is the good life? It means a million different things to a million different people. It means so many things that it can become this word that's very bland, very flavorless. It almost means nothing because it means everything good. How in the world are we supposed to recognize the goodness of God as it grows inside of us? Throughout scripture, it was inconceivable for good to exist without God, apart from God. God was seen as the highest good, the source of all good. James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So what does it look like when we are filled with this goodness of God? Well, let's start, about, start out by talking about the precise antonym. The, the opposite of goodness first. So let's talk about badness. The Greek word for, for badness, for bad, is kaka. Uh, that's the plural form. And, and yes, there are definite, uh, there's a relationship in history to the word dung, but it actually means to harm someone to do wrong. It's this definition of badness, kaka, the opposite of good. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, kaka for kaka, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Jesus says, Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them, expecting nothing in return. I had this old English teacher in high school, and he liked to give his students 
bad ideas. And so I remember one day uh, he suggested to us, he says, you know, the next time you go to the zoo, you should stand around at the monkey exhibit and you should smile at the monkeys and show them all your teeth. He's, he warned us, though. He said, you better be ready to duck. Because he said, showing your teeth is a sign of aggression. And if you just keep on smiling at those monkeys and showing them their teeth, they, they will become angrier and angrier and more and more aggressive. And they'll, they'll pick up their caca and they will start throwing it at you. And, and whoever else is standing around, you better be ready to duck. And sadly, that describes the world we live in. Throwing caca. Everyone wants a good life, but when someone throws caca at them, they're throwing their caca back. And, and you look around and it's like, whoa, we, we are all doing this. Around and around we go. Clear back in the days of Noah, that's what caused God to regret ever creating humanity. It was caca happens, and when it happens, it breaks God's heart. To do harm. The book of Romans 13, verse 10 says, Love does no harm, no caca to its neighbor. So God wants to reverse this cycle. Uh, so the Apostle Paul is saying, Strive to do what is good. Don't do caca for caca. Strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone. So we have this picture of what goodness is not. Let's talk about what goodness is. And you'll notice the farther we go into exploring the fruit of the Spirit, you start to realize you're like, wait a minute, that kind of overlaps with one of the other fruits that we already talked about. Uh, and it's like, yeah, it does. Because at the very beginning, the fruit of the Spirit, that word fruit, it's singular. It's not plural. This is one fruit. So yeah, as we look at these different sides, these different descriptions, it's like, yep, yeah, it's one fruit. So it's going to overlap. So the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness is a positive moral quality characterized by interest in the welfare of others. So it's care in active ways. It is beneficial to others, useful. It's generosity. In the midst of a world that wants to define the good life however they want, the prophet Micah, Micah 6, 8, he says, He has told you, O human, what is good. God has told you, and what Yahweh requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Bible scholar Bruce Winter has done a whole bunch of research on this word good. And what did this word mean in a Greek context, in a Roman context, in the Greek and Roman world? And here's what he uncovers. Uh, to do good means things like supplying grain in times of necessity. It means forcing the price of products, commodities down by selling below the asking rate. It means building, building,
buildings for the public, public buildings, adorning, refurbishing old buildings, refurbishing the theater, widening the roads, construction of public utilities, helping the city in times of upheaval. That's the picture that he gets of good. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he says, to each one in the body is given the expression, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this picture that the Apostle Paul has in mind is sharing, swapping with one another, mutual support, helping one another out. It's where everyone feels responsible for everyone else. Uh, we're told all the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling possessions, giving to anyone as they had need. Acts 2.45. Now, when you read the early church fathers and mothers, the, the people who handed down this faith that we have, it is astounding how important this idea of the common good was to them. Origen said that Jesus died for the common good. All of scripture resounds with this theme. It's been said by many, salvation is centered on the restoration of all creation to God's original goodness. Pamphilius said, Pentecost was for the common good. Clement of Alexandria says, God's gifts are for the common good. Lactantius says, that common good is the highest virtue. Augustine contrasts the common good with this preference for a life organized around personal and private matters, private interests. Chrysostom says, this is the rule of most perfect Christianity. Its most exact definition is its highest point, namely the seeking of the common good. For nothing can so make a person an imitator of Christ as caring for his neighbor. How may we become imitators of Christ? By acting in everything for the common good and not merely seeking our own. Eusebius described the common good as letting those who delight in error to be made welcome to the same degree of peace and tranquility as those who believe. This is his picture of the common good. Gregory the Great believed that the things destined for the common good, so the gifts God gives us and intends for us to share with others, are perverted by private interests if we use them just to serve ourselves. We live in a world organized around private interests, private affairs, personal affairs. Our society places a very high premium on private interests. Everyone gets to decide for themselves what is good. And so as long as you're not breaking the law, our society says you really should be free to do whatever you want. And don't even try to pry those private interests out of someone else's hands unless they are cold and dead. It's like you get to decide what the good life looks like for yourself. Go get it. It's the American dream. And as Christians, 
living in North America, it can be so easy to just go along with that flow and to accept that, you know what, even like even part of Neatart's Friends Church, you know, we're all actually oriented around our own private interests. It can be so easy to just go along with that instead of being a church family that's oriented around the common good, a church family that truly feels responsible for the well-being of one another. Because to, to live towards the common good is to swim upstream. It's to be intentionally counter-cultural. And as a church family, we've said we are welcoming, we are yearning, we are sharing. Can you hear the common good in that theme? Now, anytime we talk about goodness or the good life, it's so easy to start thinking in all or nothing terms. Like, either it's all up to me or it's all up to God. I certainly have had times when I thought I knew what goodness looked like. I thought I knew what the good life was. And I felt like that good life, the goodness, was all up to me. And I'm guessing you know what that burden feels like as well. That burden, feeling like it's all up to me, it feels anxious, it feels heavy. I end up forcing things. I try really hard. I attempt to control everything. And it feels anything but good when it's all up to me. Life becomes overwhelming. There are too many obstacles. There's too much suffering. There's too much caca. On the opposite end of that spectrum is thinking that goodness, the good life, is completely up to God. And that doesn't create anything pretty either. It creates people who encounter suffering, they encounter pain, and they say, I can't do anything about it. God's going to have to fix it. And so they bury their head in the sand. They look the other way. They hide away. They insulate themselves from the world that's aching and groaning for goodness. They deny the possibility that they might be the answer to someone else's prayers. It's all up to me or it's all up to God. And somewhere in between those two possibilities, we find God creating humans with this incredible capacity for goodness. We are created to be God's co-workers, we are told. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are this reflection of the goodness of God, created in the image of God. That's Genesis, the creation story. Romans 8, 28, God works together with us for the good. Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul says, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And he goes on in Romans 15 to say, I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. The Apostle Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. The fruit of the Spirit is 
goodness. So let's go back to that Christmas moment that you're going to experience this week on Saturday. Let's go back to those memories you hold of Christmas's past with loved ones who are no longer here. See that picture in your mind. You're gathered there around the tree, opening gifts. You're feeling the magic of Christmas and you are aching for the good life, for a renewed world. That ache that you feel is the ache of salvation. It's the ache for salvation, for the restoration of all creation to its original goodness. And it's hard to let yourself really fully feel that ache because we so quickly say, well, it's all up to me or it's all up to God. I invite you this week to connect with the 14-year-old girl, Mary. Her belly is swelling. It's growing. God has asked for her consent to accomplish salvation, to restore the world's original goodness, and she has consented. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. And it's not completely up to her. And it isn't completely up to God. She has joined God in creating the highest good, the incarnation, Jesus. She feels the world's ache. Just read her prayer in Luke 1, 47. She, right in the middle of that prayer, she says, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. She feels that ache of those who are looked down upon and pushed aside without any safety nets, those who are hungry, those who have no advocate, those without a voice, those without any power. And she's willing to offer all of who she is. She's willing to be fully connected to her God-given capacity for goodness. The world is not yet the way that she imagines it. Salvation is not yet complete. The original goodness is not yet restored. But she rejoices in being a part of God's salvation. She says, you have filled the hungry with good things. What about you? Can you let yourself feel the world's ache and can you connect with your own god-given capacity for goodness like take a look at yourself take a look at your body your resources your talents your abilities and hear these words of scripture i am convinced brothers and sisters that you are full of goodness and and let that settle in deep inside of you. What is it that you are capable of? What is it that you have to offer to others? And don't downplay yourself. Connect with that goodness in its entirety. And then take a look at the ache that you feel for this world. And don't shy away from it. Let yourself feel how much creation is all groaning. But don't feel that ache alone because 
It's not all up to you, and it's not all up to God. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness isn't something you do. It is being who you are. It's being who you were created to be. It's God in you and you in God. It's trusting the salvation of God and that in the end, all creation will be restored to its original goodness. Merry Christmas. Love you, friends.